So the last few episodes, we covered free-to-play, the app store, and casual gaming. And I think you get the confidence of all three trends in mobile games, in the iPhone and the iOS app store, but then also on social networking inside of Facebook. And the rise and fall of Zynga tells that story. So it's interesting because, you know, this thing blew up and between... You know, we raised our Series B in 2002, was a massive struggle, and Qualcomm kind of came to our rescue. And then Benchmark, my ultimate employer many years later, came and did the Series C. And by September of 2004, same month as Google, we went public, close to a billion-dollar valuation when a billion-dollar valuation meant something. And, you know, we're generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. We acquired the rights to Tetris. We acquired the rights to Bejeweled. So we had a really interesting collection of casual games, and we were selling millions and millions of units through this. So I think, you know, if you were paying attention, you could see that there was this massive, massive market for mobile games. And, you know, you started to see the first smartphones coming out in 2005 with bigger screens, touch screens. This was the era of the BlackBerry and the Handspring and some of these other kinds of, you know, PDA-type devices. And so there were a really interesting proliferation of new platforms. And in 2005, we get a, a really strange call. So we get a call from Tony Fidel, who at the time was was working on a bunch of stealth projects at Apple, but in particular, he's the father of the iPod. And he invites us to come up to Apple and talk about putting games on the iPod. And so this was 2005. So we're now, we're talking two years, two and a half years before the introduction of the iPhone. Wow. And we go up to Cupertino. We actually had to buy a Mac laptop because we were told, do not try and present at Apple with a PC. So we went up to the, we went up to Apple, we bought a Mac laptop, we go up and we give them a presentation with some ideas that we had spitballed about games that we could make rhythm based music games, for example, you know, like a guitar hero or dance dance revolution that we could potentially do on an iPad musical games and, mm. and others and other games that might be susceptible to the click wheel that was prevalent on those early iPods, the big white ones with the big wheel, if you remember them. Yep. And so uh, we met with him and we thought the meeting had gone pretty well. But on the way out, Tony and his team basically said, don't call us, we'll call you. For us, that was like the kiss of death. So we sort of put our tail between our legs and we went back to LA from Cupertino and we didn't hear from him for like a year. Wow. Like a year later, we get a call and they're like, okay, we're ready for those games now. After having not talked to us for an entire year. So... We trundle back up to, to Cupertino and we sort of hash out what we could do on short notice because they're like, look, we're going to launch a store for the iPod with applications and we want your games in that store. And so we rushed and we threw some things together and we created some games. And when they launched that store in September of 2006, we somehow had four of the eight launch titles. So we were half the market for iPod games when they first came out. It didn't work. It didn't sell very well. People weren't really, didn't really grok the idea of buying games for their iPods. Nevertheless, little did we know that this was just basically a trial balloon for the iPhone and the App Store. We were the guinea pigs. Oh my gosh. What an incredible story. I, I mean, we talked about Tonelli and we talked about Robert Westmoreland, and it feels like in a lot of ways, you're actually one of the godfathers of casual gaming here. I, yeah, I would say really kind of more the business nerd, but I would say Scott Lehman and Zach Norman, who ran the studio at Jamdat, deserve the credit. They were the pioneers. It, that's absolutely incredible. To have four of the eight on the initial iPod is just absolutely insane. And obviously, we know how this plays out where 
I imagine, is it a year later that that the iPhone comes out? Pretty much. So, um, you know, we sold the company. Electronic Arts came in and acquired us for like $680 million in the end of 2006. And so by 2007, early 2007, I was an EA employee. Hmm. And in January of 2007, Steve Jobs announces the iPhone at uh, Macworld, which still existed back in those days in San Francisco. And it was, you know, it's still to this day one of, you know, it's a great rewatch to go back and watch. I've watched it many times. It's it's, incredible. It's really incredible. And it's really incredible also because you could see the world that we were coming from and the glimmers of the world we were heading towards because a lot of that iPhone announcement is about telephony, Hmm. right? It's about making phone calls, right? I mean- you're part of this next generation. You're you're a millennial. You don't make phone calls. You never call me, right? Yeah. You, you just text message me. It's like my own children. They never answer the phone when I call them. And then they I call them and they text me back. Exactly. Um, so it's really funny to watch that Steve Jobs video through that prism because he was really foregrounding things like, you know, visual voicemail. Like who cares about visual voice? But it was like a big deal in that initial iPhone announcement. Yeah, obviously, we now know that games became such a huge part of the iPhone. When the iPhone initially comes out, I think I had the first version of the iPhone. I remember there were games like Doodle Jump or these like really simple, casual games. It doesn't feel like it fully explodes at that point, but what ends up happening? Well, there's no third-party software really on launch, right? It's just the Apple software that's available on the phone on launch, and, and that persisted for some time. Um, It really wasn't until a while later, I think 18 months later, that the iPhone opens up to third-party apps through the App Store. And even then, the App Store was very much like the App Stores on the Verizon and AT&T phones, where they were single download, paid download. Hmm. Um, You know, we were selling games for $2.99 or whatever on Verizon. And that was really the same kind of model that was carried over to the initial App Store. So... Games were viable. People were making them and selling them. Obviously, the screen and the chip and all of the infrastructure on the iPhone was just significantly better than on the feature phones. And so it was obviously hinted at an amazing platform for games in the future. But the commercial model of paid download was still a little bit full of friction in terms of, of its ability to really enable a casual games business that could be as mass market as the iPhone really suggested. And so it really wasn't until really October of 2009 when finally Apple got around to announcing the concept of in-app purchase, where you could allow someone to download something for free and then pay for it once they decided that they liked it, that you really saw this market take off. And in a lot of ways, it wasn't the introduction of the iPhone in 2007. It was the introduction of in-app purchase in 2009 that catalyzed the video game market on mobile phones. I I can't just emphasize that enough. You know, it wasn't actually the iPhone uh, that truly changed the mobile gaming industry. It was the introduction of the in-app purchase. And that makes so much sense in hindsight. But again, it goes back to the first episode where free-to-play completely changes everything. And with Apple playing a role as a platform, maybe not a platform-based publisher, they did have all of these credit cards. They had aggregated all the demand there. It plays this amazing role to just completely unlock free-to-play mobile gaming. Yeah, I mean, free-to-play really found its home in mobile and in the App Store um, because you had this pattern where children or adults, in fact, would download a bunch of different games for free. They would play each of them for 15 or 20 seconds just to see if they were fun. And then they would keep playing the one that they liked. And as they continued to play it more and more, they were incentivized to pay for it. 
uh, to buy extra lives, to buy extra cosmetic items, to buy extra gear, whatever it was that would, you know, enhance their gameplay. And so that model, that addiction model of mobile became incredibly important and it would never have happened without in-app purchase because without in-app purchase, you could never have done free-to-play. And it was free-to-play, as we discussed in our first episode, that really opened this market up. Is it fair to assume that the incumbents, like in this the packaged good free-to-play era, uh, struggled or had innovators' dilemma? Do we see the same thing play out here where you were at EA at the time? Were you slow to adopt uh, free-to-play in this context? So I had left EA already to go to Benchmark in 2008. So I wasn't around for the move to in-app purchase, unfortunately. But my colleagues, I think, unfortunately, didn't get it. And they continued to try and sell very high-priced games. I mean, EA was selling a version of John Madden football the year of in-app purchases release in 2009 for $14.99, right? One of the highest-priced products in the App Store. Uh, other than maybe, you know, esoteric productivity software. That was pretty much it. So a $15 SKU. Again, people wouldn't even pay $15 for things on Steam today. And yet they were trying to, to create a premium price point for software, utterly misunderstanding how that market was going and just how free-to-play had transformed it. I mean, this was right around the same time that I was having my initial meetings with Riot Games. So it was already clear that free-to-play was an important vector in the in the video game business. And it was clear for something that we're going to really need to talk about a little bit now. And that was the casual game explosion on Facebook. All, all I know when you say Facebook casual gaming is I think of immediately just Farmville. That just took over my life and so many of my friends' lives. Is that what you're referring to? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't like to use the term social gaming because in a lot of ways, what was happening on Facebook with the early Zynga games and Playfish games and some of the others was distinctly antisocial, <laughs> but uh, let's call it social games because that's what everybody else calls it. But yes, starting uh, around that same time, around 2006, you had these titles like Farmville that were showing up on Facebook and they were just exploding. And, you know, you had companies like Zynga, you know, they, they'd come from making other casual games. They had a Texas Hold'em poker game that I remember early on. And in 2009, they put out Farmville and it goes from zero to like 20 million active users pretty much overnight and starts raking in the cash. Everyone was playing Farmville. You know, I, I was, call it 15 or 16 at that time. And I just remember my entire Facebook just being pure Farmville spam. Uh, like the notifications constantly were, were just go and play, like take care of your, your farm. Yeah, we'll come back to the notification stuff because that's really important to the part of the story that's about customer acquisition and analytics because that played a really important role in Facebook's turning a blind eye to this customer acquisition spam that Zynga was engaged in is a really important part of this story because it ends up in some weird areas if you if you <laughs> if you play it out to the end and we'll get there. But you know, Zynga really understood deeply the virality of Facebook and the nature of the feed, the Facebook feed, they went on a three-year run between 2009 and their IPO in 2011 that was pretty much one of the most remarkable in the history of the video game business. I mean, at the time of the IPO, Zynga had 54 million dailies and 227 million monthly active users, which is astonishing, really, by any measure. And they'd grown revenues from like 20 million in 2008 
to a billion in 2011, yes. right? So this was just explosive growth of a kind we hadn't really ever seen before. This was before Riot and League of Legends when that would ultimately get to these levels. But this was a really early echo of what was going to happen later in the core PC business. Look, they were not popular. Critics hated it. Like with Robert Westmoreland, when he was bringing Deer Hunter to market, there were people in the core business who looked at Zynga and thought it was not a games company. But it was the focus on the dark engagement patterns on Facebook that people really had a problem with. I think there was nothing wrong with Farmville. It's a perfectly fine game and it's a perfectly fine play pattern. But it was the the spam and some of these dark patterns around engagement to kind of incentivize you to put your achievements on the timeline so that your friends would see what you were doing, et cetera, and then hopefully join in where they really kind of started to get in trouble. Yeah, it almost felt like Facebook and Zynga at the time were married. It felt like when you would go on your newsfeed or you'd go and check your notifications, they were one and the same. It felt like Zynga took over Facebook at, at some point. And it's not just the appearance I mean, when Facebook went public later, Zynga was 12% of their revenue. They had to disclose it in their S1 because of the dependency. I mean, it was that material. You were not seeing it wrongly. <laughs> you were seeing it correctly. It, they were really important. They were joined at the hip in a very fundamental way. And so Facebook really was incentivized to look the other way, largely, and, and to allow some of these dark engagement patterns to persist. I'm assuming... That happened primarily because Facebook didn't have their dominant ad business at the time. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was really before Facebook kind of became the behemoth in the direct response advertising that we know it, it is today. Hmm. And so I'm sure they learned a lot from the experience of Zynga in terms of how to structure this. But yes, you're right. What happens to Zynga, right? You have Farmville, you have this hit. It seems like Facebook eventually responds and on some level. But what happens to, to Zynga in this whole story? So they have a really interesting trajectory. So they go public in 2011. They run up to like a $7 billion valuation. Actually, they go out at a $7 billion valuation. They run up beyond the $7 billion valuation. And everybody is celebrating who were shareholders of Zynga or who were fans of the social casual game market. But they came back down to earth very hard because right around the time that they went public, Facebook started to really changed their tune in terms of the role that they wanted to play in the gaming business. I mean, up until that point, they had kind of let it be a bit of a laissez-faire environment for games companies that wanted to come in and utilize distribution through the feed. But starting in around 2012, the year after Zynga goes public, Facebook starts really changing their tune. And they decide that they want to be more of a customer acquisition vehicle through direct response advertising off the feed then they really want that feed spam to start proliferating in a way that would ruin the customer experience for people on Facebook. And that change really affects Zynga dramatically and their market cap falls at one point within the subsequent couple of years, they're trading at roughly the enterprise value of their cash and the building that they owned in downtown San Francisco. So they fell on pretty hard times. But ultimately, they were able to kind of pull it out. I mean, Zynga has recently been sold to Take-Two. And, you know, that was a deal that occurred at a multiple of the low point. And I think a lot of the credit goes to Frank Jabot. Um, J Frank was a colleague of mine 
at Electronic Arts back in, in 2007. He was the head of marketing when, when I was there. And uh, Frank took over Zynga as the third CEO after Don Matrick, another EA veteran, and then obviously Mark Pincus, the founder. And Frank really brought it back to life. He was a methodical, intelligent guy who just did an, a yeoman's job there and really got value for the shareholders at the end of the day. But it was a tough slog and it took a long time to bring that company back. I don't know if it seems weird to you how obsessed I am by these kinds of stories. These are epic, epic companies that made a lot of money in a very short amount of time. They rise and fall due to platform shifts. They're extremely creative in their business models. They're highly attuned to their customers. And there is no room for them to fail. Like, essentially, when you play a game and you make a game, you know, there is no utility value. It is all in the entertainment. Any bit of friction gets your users to churn because they can find another game to uh, enjoy themselves with. And it is, to me, one of the highest art forms of <laughs> creating and running software businesses, even though, obviously, the uh, use case is a little bit frivolous. But providing people joy probably is not frivolous, right? Like, doing that in a sustainable fashion. Anyway, I think um, it's a fascinating lesson, and tomorrow's episode is my favorite one. I have one more little bonus for you, which is a lot of mobile game and casual game companies came out of the Nordic countries, Denmark, Finland, Sweden. And it's kind of weird until you figure out the cultural angle to this, which is the demo scene. It's super interesting to think about, again, from a business perspective, these decisions had real repercussions. And by Apple choosing the, the top 10 charts or the top charts strategy, it actually starts to create giants in the mobile gaming industry, specifically mobile game developers. What were those early examples? You really had an era starting around the launch of in-app purchase and extending kind of, you know, into the second decade of the 21st century where you really had the rise of these super developers. And they had kind of learned the lesson from the web and PC companies like like Zynga, like Double Down, like uh, KixEye, like Machine Zone. And they brought some of those techniques, but largely with better games, onto the mobile platform. And so you had these super developers that arose during that era. You had King.com, you had Supercell, you had Rovio, companies which ended up generating hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in revenue in some cases very, very profitable companies emerge giants in, in this era. And oddly, most of them were from the Nordic countries. I can make an assumption based off of what we started this episode with. Is it Nordic specifically because of Nokia? Is that, is that a fair assumption? Nokia really cast a long shadow over that whole industry. I mean, there was a real Nordic bent to the mobile phone industry because of the dominance of Nokia during the feature phone era. But also in parallel, I think you had this very endemic computer entertainment gaming and music scene that was known locally as the demo scene in the Nordic countries, really going back to pre-mobile times that created a whole culture of creativity and casual gaming in those countries. And a lot of the people who ended up being really successful in the Apple era of the mobile phone business really got their start not only in the feature phone business, but even earlier in the demo scene. So they had these parties. The demo scene was really centered around these demo parties where the community would get together and they would create these micro applications, a lot of times very music oriented back in the day. 
And so many interesting people that we now think of in the video game business, you know, got their start in the demo scene. You had Christoph Balestra, who ran Naughty Dog for a while, really mm. famous PlayStation developer. He was a scene star. He came out of the demo scene. The Swedish company Dice, which mm. Electronic Arts acquired, they made the Battlefield series. They came out of the demo scene. UC Lackanen, whose game analytics startup was recently acquired by Unity, he came out of the scene. He was, a, he was like a scene organizer. And there were many, many others. So there was this pool of talent in the Nordic countries who were capable of making these games under the kind of constraints that were necessary to make profitable mobile games, which means low budgets, fast iterative development. And so I think in it, as much as Nokia was an important component of the Nordic dominance of the early mobile era, I think the demo scene played a role. Is, is it fair to think of demo scenes almost, uh, or these demos as almost a hackathon? Is, is that a fair comparison? They were kind of a combination of a hackathon and a battle of the bands. Okay, amazing. So yeah, out of that, you got King.com in Sweden, which ran a modestly successful browser-based company making match-three type games, one of which was called Candy Crush, should sound very familiar if you're familiar with the mobile games business. And then they were running it on Facebook and on the web. And in 2012, they decided to bring it to mobile where, of course, it blows up. And they go from, you know, 50 million a year annually to nearly 2 billion in 2013. And they ended up public and then acquired by Activision. You know, they were really sort of the epitome of this new market in a lot of ways. Like they had experience in mass market on the web and in casual coming, you know, from the social gaming world originally. And they knew how to do virtual goods monetization. They knew how to do data-driven customer acquisition. And look, when Facebook took them over, they paid $5.9 billion for them in 2016. They were still spending 50% of net revenues on customer acquisition, $1.2 billion annually. They were spending on primarily to places like Facebook. And that's money that leaked off of the platform in a lot of ways, right? That gives you a sense of the scale of this. So they were a really important early player. So fun personal fact, when I joined the hedge fund that was going to join in San Francisco, I actually had to pick a stock to pitch. And at the time, King was publicly listed. It was Candy Crush and it was crushing. So I pitched King, Candy Crush. I got the job. And a year later, King was acquired and we did not own the stock because I had moved on to other things. And that was part of my sadness in <laughs> my finance career that was very short-lived. Uh, but ultimately, I think it opened my eyes as to how good a business games are and how if you can build a sustainable revenue business, particularly through casual games, but also with some nice AAA titles that are hits, you get a really nice business out of it. And that is gaming. 